pattering away. I guess that's our time to open up the Word. Good morning. Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church. Happy to have you with us this morning. Uh, I'm maybe uh, fortunate. I would say more than maybe. I'm certainly fortunate to be here with you. You may notice that my beard's just a little trimmer, and you might think that that's because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting better at my own hygiene, but that's, that's not what happened. I was back in Illinois this week helping my father-in-law. Some of you may know we owned a business together, seal coating, and part of seal coating is uh, crack filling, and part of crack filling is lighting that crack filler on fire. And uh, we had a little bit of a leak. My father-in-law and I and the other man that owned the business with us were kind of cheap, and so we used things maybe longer than they should be, and little did we know there was a leak coming from the bottom of this big cooker, and it set the whole trailer on fire. And so I go booking over, and I'm spraying down the hose, my fa- my, the, the, the tank. My father-in-law's telling me, get away, get away. I think he was worried about my beard getting caught on fire entirely. But anyway, it got trimmed down a little bit in God's way, so I guess he wanted me to be a little bit more clean cut. But I'm here, and we'll praise the Lord for that. Yeah, amen. It was a hot experience. I, I guess I kind of equated a little bit to, you know, the burning bush, but God didn't speak to me directly from there, so I, I can't exactly make that connection. But if you would with me, please, to turn to Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9, as we continue our, our walk through Galatians. What a great and blessed letter that this is for us. Um, one of their very first of Paul's letters, epistles, And um, as we continue this study, as we continue this study, you may remember several weeks ago, um, I had a slide up there with Martin Luther that said, I continue to to preach justification through faith every week because every week we forget it. And that is what Paul does in this book. Now, he continues to hit it from different angles. He continues to come from different perspectives, as we'll see today. But it always comes back to the same thing that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, that our justification, our being made right or righteous, comes only in one way, only in one way. As a matter of fact, in the hour one, Zach brought a tremendous message from Second John, reminding us of that very thing, that the Word of God is the standard. It is the truth holder. It's the gatekeeper. It's what we use to understand what truth really is, and it's the only thing we can And we don't suffer any other messages at all. We won't listen to them. We won't consider them. We won't tolerate them. And how important that is that we look at this today. So before we dive into the text, let me pray one more time for this time as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we give you glory and praise and honor, and you are worthy of it. We thank you for your word and how rich it is. We thank you for the reminders, some that we need every week the reminders of who you are and who we are. We thank you for justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. We thank you that it doesn't depend on us. We thank you that we don't have to hold it because most certainly we would lose it. We thank you for your love, your concern, that your mercy to us is unending. And we thank you for the continual view that you have of your love for us that you continue to extend to us, and as we even heard this morning, what we're looking forward to. We thank you for the hope that we have within us. Be with us now as uh, we study your word inspired by your Holy Spirit, and I pray that we can understand more of it today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Quick review of where we've been already, and 
by the way, do you enjoy our new projectors? Nice and bright, and some of my color schemes are going to work a lot better now with these brighter projectors. But now you don't have to just look this way. You can look either way or go back and forth like a tennis match. Your choice. But here's what we've hit so far, just to kind of remind ourselves of where we've been. Galatians is the first of the 13 epistles, as I mentioned, in the New Testament, written to a collection of churches in Galatia. And it's Paul's purpose for writing it that is brought back up today. Notice again, and I've given you this verse before, Galatians 1, 8 through 9, here's what Paul says. This is what he writes. This is why he is writing this letter, this epistle. But even if we, we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and as we've said before, so now I am saying again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is all about the truth. That's what this is about. That's what we are considering. And this purpose continues. Paul validates his authority, the authentication of his gospel, his word, his truth that he writes, that the other apostles write, God's word that they write of. Paul defends his call as an apostle here. Paul then confronts Peter and other Judaizers, or I wouldn't put Peter in that category, but he was leaning towards them, these Judaizers who were trying to add a burden to salvation that should not be there based on Jewish law and tradition. So we've seen that in the past already. And then last week, as we continued on in chapter 3, he's going to explain his doctrine. He establishes that authority, explains the doctrine, and then he's going to illustrate it in chapter 4. But you may remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Kevin delivered to us this, this last time in Galatians 3, 1 through 5. I won't reread the whole thing, but you might remember what, what was said about these Judaizers. He called them foolish and bewitched. He didn't, like, hide his opinion about that. In hour 1, and I just I find it fascinating, of course I knew what was coming, but fascinating how the Holy Spirit connects all of these dots we should do the same. We don't hide the truth. And we're not slack or, or, or lack confidence or are, are not courageous enough to call truth truth and lies lies. See, as believers, we've been called to stand in the gap. We've been called for this place and then this time, for this moment, as John 17 tells us, to call truth truth and lies lies. That's what we're called to do. And he called them bewitched and foolish because of what they were pushing, going beyond grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So that's where we've been up to this point. And now we're going to pick this up in verse 6 through 9. Now here's what we're going to see today. And I've kind of made this easy for you a little bit. You'll notice my four little words here, and I stole this from somebody. I, I don't remember who, but <laughs> you know how notes are. I stole this from somebody but verse 6, we're going to see the pattern of Abraham with regard to justification by faith. We're going to see the progeny or historical inheritance, the line, family line of Abraham in verse 7. Verse 8, the purpose of Abraham, why God called him, and then the promise of Abraham. So we're going to see, a, you see my four Ps here, that helps you to remember a little bit. But that's what we'll see in these four verses. And not perfectly divided, but pretty close. So that's what we're going to see in Galatians 3, 6 through 9. So if you're not there already, turn to Galatians 3, and we'll jump into this text. And I'll read the whole thing through, and then we'll come back and break this down. So Galatians chapter 3, 6 through 9, simply titled, Abraham Believed God. 
how simple and how direct that that is. But let's just take a look at this and and read it through, and then we'll break it down. Verse 6. Here's what we say. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, it doesn't take much to realize what Paul is doing here. He's mentioning Abraham. As a matter of fact, the entire text is about Abraham. And you might be thinking to yourself, why is he doing that? These Judaizers are all about Abraham. These Judaizers are putting their trust in the fact that they're sons of Abraham. As a matter of fact, you'll see here in point one, the Jews put their trust, in some cases even for salvation or their mind, justification in the fact that they're descendants of Abraham. So somebody might think, well, why would you take this angle? I mean, this is going to hurt your cause, Paul. If you just talk about Abraham in the Old Testament, well, you're going to defend their argument. But see, that's not what happens. See, what we're going to see and what we already know, we that are in the faith, is that the Old Testament was all about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament was pointing us to the fact that we would be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. See, he's not afraid to use the Old Testament because the Old Testament validates his point. Okay? The Jews and the Gentile believers, they only had the Old Testament, so naturally, Paul is going to use the defense of the faith from Scripture. And let me just pause right here. So should you. So should you. You should know your word, both the New and the Old Testament, but you should be able to work through it, understand it. Not just because you've heard instruction here, not just because you occasionally will read a verse or two here and there, because you dig into it. We're going to find out later, and we actually heard this morning in 2 John uh, verse 9, that if we're in Christ, we're abiding in Him. We're fully in, and we abide in His Word. It is part of you. It interfaces with you. It's what you're all about. And so he's going to build his case based on this, and the idea of it is to silence the core of their argument with the book that they hold sacred, the book that they hold sacred, and as we should too. found a great quote about this particular thing from Dr. Andy Woods. Uh, one of the professors have come through Dallas, and he says this, why in the world would Paul bring up the subject of Abraham? Dangerous. The reason he's bringing up the subject of Abraham is because Paul's opponents, the Judaizers, wrapped themselves up in the Old Testament. They wrapped themselves up in Judaism. They wrapped themselves up in the Mosaic Law. And so they gave their target audience, these Judaizers, the impression that somehow the Old Testament was on their side, how the practice of Judaism was on their side. Paul is now using the life of Abraham to prove that that is not true, that what they were teaching and preaching and they were using God's word to do it was not true and how dangerous it is. And I would say something that So many in our world today, you'll see politicians do this a lot. They'll quote God's word, take a snippet here, a snippet there, twist it for their own purposes. There's a heavy judgment coming for something like that. To take God's word, which is sacred and eternal, which is forever, which is perfect, which is without flaw, and to take it and use it and twist it for your own benefit, taking it out of context. And Paul's not going to let them do it. Paul's going to call them right on the carpet, and he's going to... 
He's going to tell, tell them truth is truth and lie is lie. And I think this is vital. Now keep in mind, before we go forward, he is speaking in context of his conversation with, Paul, with Peter and Barnabas and others who were getting led astray by this. And this is so important for us too. Remember, the gifts that you've been given by the Holy Spirit, the ability to serve one another is for the benefit of the church. When we consider why we do what we do, why we say what we say, why we call out things that are false or fallacies from, that, that are opposed to Scripture, is certainly for the non-believer, but it's also to build up one another, to keep each, each other sharp. And that's what we'll see today. Now, you'll notice, we're going to notice here that it isn't just Paul who does this. It isn't just Paul who will make reference to Abraham. Look with me in Matthew chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I've got it up on the, on the screen, but feel free to go there if you'd like. John the Baptist has to deal with this right away. If you want the mindset of how these Judaizers are thinking, even those who are very interested and attracted to Jesus Christ and his message, as we'll see here with John the Baptist and then later with Christ, they always go back to this, this idea of being a Jew, being associated or a descendant of Abraham. Look at what John the Baptist has to deal with when he's talking to these Pharisees and Sadducees. This is in verse 7. But when he saw, John the Baptist, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, I just love this, he called them out. He saw them and he called them out with courage and boldness. He called them out because of what they were stirring up, a false gospel. You brood of vipers, you, you, you warn you, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We're going to come back around to that later on. Keep that in the back of your head. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul will say a very similar thing in Acts 26. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones, and I'm sure he's pointing at these stones laying around, around him, to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear f- good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Keep that in the back of your head. Just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't give you an angle. It doesn't give you a free pass. It doesn't give you a ticket to heaven. Being Jewish gives you an advantage in that you have the word of God, no doubt about it. You have been privy to the truth. You have been exposed to it since your childhood, as Paul would say to Timothy, but it doesn't give you a free pass. Just being associated with Abraham. So he deals with this as well. These Pharisees and Sadducees who were opposed to one another, both wrong, but found unity in opposing Christ. Very interesting that he comes after these false teachers from different angles for different reasons. And then look at Jesus does the same thing. So this, he's, Paul's in good company. And this, very interesting, in John chapter 8 and verse 31, he's talking to Jews who were following him. So these are men, and possibly women who were there, who were following him, but still holding on some, to some of this tradition. He's speaking to them. And the, the, the overriding theme of what Christ is saying in John chapter 8 is that the truth is going to set you free. That, that bond, the, bond, the bondage and the slavery to sin and then the oppression of the law because you can't fulfill it, that it is only fulfilled through Christ, he can be set free from that. And they're, they're fighting against him. They're kicking back on this idea, saying, wait a minute, we're not slaves to anything. We're descendants of Abraham, they say in verse 33. But let's pick this up in verse 37. I know that you're offsprings of Abraham. I, I know. I know who you are. 
Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you, don't, you, don't, and you do what you have heard from your father. By the way, later on, father, their father is Satan. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. See, he is saying, yeah, I know you're a descendant of Abraham, but here's who the true descendants of Abraham. We'll see this again coming out later. The ones who actually do what Abraham did. And let me just give you a preview of what Abraham did. He obeyed the Lord. He trusted the Lord when it didn't seem possible. He understood true faith. We're going to see that unpacked today. But he is connecting back here to what, did the, what were the works of Abraham, as we see in verse 39 here? Faith and obedience under duress. Faith and obedience when it doesn't seem practical. Faith and obedience like we heard this morning because he abided in God's word and his promises. That's what it looks like. And he's saying to these, again, concept, the concept is similar to these Judaizers, I don't care where you came from. This is going to be available to the whole world, and it's beyond just being a Jew or a Gentile. This is very interesting because Paul knows what he's speaking of here. When you see this right here, Abraham is our father, he knows what he's talking about. You know what Paul said in Philippians 3, I'm the best of the best when it comes to Pharisees. I followed the law better than anybody, and I consider it all rubbish. See, he understood that these things are not going to save. And he is making this argument. Christ is making the argument. John the Baptist is making the argument. And now John or Paul is making the argument. So back to verse 6. The pattern of Abraham. Number one, what is the pattern that we see? Let me reread this verse. Really the key verse to the whole thing this morning. Coming off of talking about these Judaizers who got pulled away and how foolish and bewitched they were for believing in something that wasn't true based on Scripture. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness or reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 6. So interesting. Well, let's look at Abraham then for a minute. We need to know the history. As I mentioned before, you need to know your word. And although I'm certain that many of you are aware of Abraham, Maybe you're, you don't have the right perspective. I, I know as I began to unpack this and study this and, and dig through it, it was a little shocking to consider his origins. Because you don't really think that way. You st- kind of start with Abraham being called and then going and, 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 and being this man of God and being tested and, and, and being the father of this great nation and all the promises, even the salvation promises going through Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22. But let's think about this for a minute. Look at what it says. Genesis chapter 11. Before we get to 12, look at what it says. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where it starts. He didn't know who God was. Look at what we see reinforced in Joshua's last message. And he brings this back around. Joshua 24, 2, talking of this time from Genesis eleven twenty seven and 28, where Abram was, where he grew up, what he was about. This tells us what he was about, this place of Ur of the Chaldeans. What was that? Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, 
Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and, and of Nahor. And look at what it says. They served other gods. They did. That includes Abraham. When we read this, it should make you think, ooh, that, that was like me. I, I once was lost and now I'm found. I was once going after the prince and the power of the air. I once was going after the things that everybody else was going after. That's going to make you think Ephesians 2 immediately. We were once that. We used to do that too. Uh, the, the idea that, that, that this is somehow, uh, Abraham was somehow righteous from the jump is just not true. He had all kinds of false gods in his life. Now, we don't know the specifics. We don't know exactly what his life looked like before that, but it says he served other gods. So we think about this. He didn't know it. The law wasn't established. The rules weren't established. The physical laws like circumcision, we'll get to later, they weren't established. He was serving other gods, and then Ephesians 2, 4 happened to him. But God, rich in mercy. There is no other way to look at this. So as we look at this and we think through this, why would Paul use Abraham? Because he wants them to see Abraham wasn't righteous on his own. As a matter of fact, Abraham was far from it. Abraham was serving other gods. Much like Paul tells to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1, I'm so happy that you've turned from this idols, these idols and are no longer worshiping those false gods. Now you may think, I never really worshipped a little statue. And Now you were following something before Jesus saved you, weren't you? You, maybe you were, maybe you were serving you. Maybe you were serving money, your job, your family, your wife, your husband, your kids, fame, fortune. I don't know. You had a God before Jesus saved you. doesn't matter how old you were when that happened. This is how he started. This is where he began. His pattern starts with unbelief too. And then God saved him. So we think about this. Abraham's a pagan before God called him. We can't sugarcoat this. He didn't know God. He was serving other gods. And then God changed his life. So this question is immediately going to be driven to these Judaizers. Well, then how did Abraham become right? How did he get a right relationship with God? How did he become righteous? Where did that come from? Because he wasn't always that. I've said this to my students many times. You realize, you understand that God has no grandchildren. You don't just get pulled into the family because your parents were believers. Your grandparents were believers. That's not how it goes. See, you're walking in the wrong path until the Lord makes sure that you hear the gospel. He stirs in your heart. And grace is bestowed, and then you believe by faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That has to happen to you individually. That's you and the Lord, one-on-one with the chosen one. It's not your parents, it's not your grandparents, and it's not your, your fact that you've maybe descended from a certain man like Abraham. So we consider this, this is what we're looking at. So, Let's consider time and place as well. If we consider these Judaizers thinking you've got to hold on to the law, you've got to hold on to circumcision, you've got to hold on to Judaism, the Mosaic law wasn't given for another 600 years when Abraham was called out of Ur. 600 years later. So back to verse 6, it says, He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's quoting Genesis 12. That's quoting Genesis 15. This is reckoned to him way before there was any law. There was no such thing as a law. That burning bush experience that myself and Moses had, uh, 
That didn't happen for so many years later. Nearly 600 years later, we see God encountering Moses and then later on at Mount Sinai giving him the law. Paul's going to establish that the gospel of Abraham believed is consistent with what Paul is preaching, what the apostles are preaching, and what we preach today. Nothing has changed. Isn't it a, a, a comfort to know that our God, our Christ, our Savior is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Isn't it a comfort and a, an assurance and a hope to know that God's word never changes and it is eternal? Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words won't. Isn't it an assurance and a, and a hope and a strength to know that I, the Lord, do not change? Man, it is for me. So when we look at this so old, so long ago, so many issues that we still see today, nothing new under the sun, people trying to invent their own way, but Paul's not going to let him do it, and he's going to use Abraham to prove it. So back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I just referenced it, but let's take a look at this real quick. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. Leave it. Remember what I told you. He was in Ur with the Chaldeans following other gods, according to Joshua 24. He's saying, turn and go. What does that sound like to you? Repent. Get out of there. Go. Do what I say. And I'll make, uh, make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later on, we're going to hear God's word tell us that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. You just heard it. How in the world can the whole world be blessed? It's not financial. It's not military. It's not some sort of peace on earth. How is the whole world blessed? Because the Messiah comes from this line. Because the one who can save you comes from here. Because redemption comes through him. Amazing to consider that, that the gospel is going to come through this line. Later on in Genesis 15, we see the same thing. He's confused about this. God is making promises. Look what he says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield, your reward. It shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. It's not his heir. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No, no, it's not going to be him. I've made a promise, I'm going to keep it. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He's not just talking about Jewish people here. Remember the promise from chapter 12? He's talking about us, those who hear the word of God and become part of this family. We'll see this later. And he believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him or counted to him as righteousness. Do you notice there that this is pretty ridiculous to believe this? It's, it's, it's insane. It goes, it goes outside of human wisdom. Because human wisdom would say, yeah, that's not possible. You don't have any kids. And just to kind of give you an idea about this, he was old, really old. When the first call came to Abram, he was 75. When God makes this claim to him and he's talking to him about these things and things like this, in chapter 15, he's 86. When it's still not culminated in Genesis 17, he's 99. Does this seem practical to you? Now, some of you are grandparents' age. 
Uh, you're, you're in that realm, in your golden years, as they say it. Imagine if somebody said, no, no, you're, you're in your 90s, but you're going to have a kid. That'd be hard to handle. Maybe you wouldn't even like it, but it would be hard to handle. It would be hard to accept. But you see, this is the incredible thing, as we'll see with Abraham. He believed God. He believed it. He just believed it. It's ridiculous. It's unbelievable. But he believed it. Now let's just talk about you. What do we believe? What do we believe as far as the gospel is concerned? Well, we believe this. The God of the universe who created everything, who spoke the world into existence, took the form of a man. And not just that. He was born in a manger, probably amongst animals, maybe in a cave, in a side room in a house. Wasn't even a, an elevated room of that house. It was in the lowest of that house. And with two young people who were really kind of novices at what to do and where to be. Most, most people think that Mary was a teenager. He decided to do that. He decided to do that. Then he lived in a very, very difficult world under Roman persecution and lived a very impoverished life. In most cases, he was, in his ministry, he was homeless. He chose to do this, lived that perfect life, never sinned once. A man that walked the earth never sinned once. Keep in mind, you believe all this. You believe all this. Fulfilled over 600 Old Testament prophecies to the T. You believe all this. Then willingly chose it, wrote it down beforehand, died on a Roman cross. You believe that. But here's the, here's the kicker. Three days later, you believe he was walking around again. Human wisdom would say, you're crazy. Now let's add a little to that. When you put your faith in him, part of him comes into you called the Holy Spirit. You believe that too, don't you? Let's add a little to that. He's going to come back someday and take you away. You believe that too, don't you? Kind of ridiculous. Unless, of course, you believe God and it was counted to you as righteousness because then it all makes sense. Then it's as clear as a bell. Then it's certainty. Then it's hope. Then it's pure religion because you believe it and you know it, you rely on it, and it's your life because the Holy Spirit has illuminated it and confirmed it in you, guaranteed it. Am I right? So that's what it looks like. This is the pattern that we see in Abraham. This is ridiculous, but he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So as we look at this, he believed God, and it's counted. We're going to do a little walk through Romans 4. I'd like you to turn to Romans 4 because I'm going to be there a lot. I'll jump in and out of it, but I think it's a good place for you guys to sit here for just a second. So go to Romans 4 because I'm going to utilize several of these passages. It is a companion passage that expands Galatians chapter 3 even more. So do that with me. Galatians chapter, or excuse me, Romans chapter 4. I'll give you a second to get there. And we're going to liberally use Romans 4 to help us out here. So we're still in verse 6, but what does this mean? So Paul says this to the church in Rome. Very similar argument. What then shall we say is gained by Abraham? Verse 1, excuse me. Our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does Scripture say? goes right back to Scripture. What does he do? He goes right back to the Old Testament. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, You think about this. This is the same exact argument. He then quotes what we just saw in Genesis 15. 
driving in, pulling in what we saw in Genesis 12, what we'll see in Genesis 22, that this is all about faith. This is all about believing in something that is in, really in, beyond human reckoning, beyond understanding. And while we're kind of thinking about this, and while we're in Romans 4, we need to kind of consider this idea of circumcision, this piece of the law. He said, according to the flesh, going back here, according to the flesh, this is going to bring to their head the idea of circumcision, which was part of this argument. Remember, that's what was part of this whole discussion from Galatians 2 through 3. Here's what Paul says in verse 9 of Romans 4, if you're still there. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, only for the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He said it again. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Very good question. Was it before or after? It was not after, but it was before. See, here's what we know is absolutely true. We know this. Abraham had not been given any instructions on circumcision until Genesis chapter 17. That's 14 years after it was counted to him as righteousness. It had nothing to do with following this law. Now, did he do it? Yes, because he obeyed the Lord. Did he do it because it was necessary? Yes, because he obeyed the Lord. We understand that in chapter 17. Let me go back here. I reverse these. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring and after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. As adults, by the way, obedience to the Lord isn't always easy. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be what? A sign. It didn't say salvation. It doesn't say justification. It doesn't say this is what's going to do it. It's a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's a sign. So here's what MacArthur says about this, and I think he puts it very well. Abraham was circumcised at least 14 years after Genesis 15, 6, where we read he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was circumcised as an old man. Salvation didn't come to him because of circumcision. The law wasn't given for 400 years after Abraham. So he certainly wasn't saved by observing the law and ceremonies of Moses. There was no law. There was no circumcision when Abraham was reckoned as righteousness. And that is precisely Paul's point. If you're holding on to that, then that makes Abraham disqualified. For 14 years of his life, it makes him disqualified and God a liar, doesn't it? He said, you're righteous. Now let's think about your salvation today. Can you lose it? Of course not. He holds you in in his hands, and no one can snatch you out of his hands. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. The Holy Spirit is a seal, a guarantee. You know that. So is our God all about giving promises and taking them back? No, he's not. He's a promise keeper. He does what he says he's going to do. So we know, staying in Romans 4, that circumcision doesn't equal righteousness. Look at Romans 4.11 if you're still there. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This should make you think being circumcised in your heart as Christ would do that to us when we're saved. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's our father if we're in Christ so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, 
physically, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Remember, repentance, fruit in line with repentance. That's what John said, that's what Christ said. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Not through the law, but the righteousness of faith. So similar to what we've already heard, an act of obedience. So we have similar things. Circumcision is a sign, much like baptism is a sign. When we think about this, there are churches out there who preach that baptism is necessary for salvation, but that's straight-up heresy, isn't it? That's not true. We should do it. We should follow in obedience, but it doesn't save us. The work of the Holy Spirit, the transformation of our lives, giving us a new heart because of the grace of God, He does that. He is totally and in all ways responsible for that. But our act of obedience in baptism is important. It's a sign that we are in Christ. That's what we see. It doesn't save. And I love this, staying in Romans. Go to verse 18. I love this because this is all about faith. And I'm going to try to bring this home to you right here in part, at least this part of it. In hope, verse 18, he believed against hope. It seemed impossible. Hoped against hope. It just, how could this be? that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be taking from Genesis 15. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. He's 90, 100 before his son comes around, since he was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, she was 90 when the Lord blessed her with a child. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God. I want you to think about this as we go forward. I'm going to reference back to this verse. He gave glory to God. Not because it was easy. This was hard. This was years and years of hearing promises but not seeing them fulfilled. Not, not right there. Believing in God but not physically seeing it. How many times have you prayed to the Lord for something desperate and his plan isn't your plan and you just got to trust him? Now, as a believer, would you say, well, that just makes me further away from the Lord? Of course not. When you see the struggle, and you go through the struggle, as we're going to see some, with some New Testament passages that reinforce this, what does that do? It just draws you to him, doesn't it? When things are hard, and you're desperately calling out to him, and even when he says no, it just makes you closer to him. It draws you to him. It makes you know that you're more dependent on him. And you give glory to him even when it doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. Why? Look at this. He's fully convinced. Fully convinced. I just love that phraseology. Fully convinced that God is able to do what he had promised. When you pray to the Lord and you believe that he could do it, you believe that he could, but he might not, and that's okay. My favorite verse, set of verses in the Bible, it's actually painted on the back of my classroom, my old classroom, we've got to get this moved over, is Daniel 3, 17 and 18. You guys know this story. You, 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 the fiery furnace is something we hear about when we're kids. right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I mean, back in my day, we had the flannel graph things, and they were all, and you're kind of vividly looking at the fire, and it's cool. But the key to that whole thing is, when he, they're talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and, and they're considering what they're about to go through. Listen, our God can save us from this. He will. But even if not, we still will not follow your gods. But even if not, I'm willing to give him glory 
And that's the sort of fully convinced that we're talking about here. Not because you get it your way every time. It doesn't work like that. Our ways are not God's ways. So when we think about this, I already reviewed this with you earlier. He's 86 when he first learned of this promise. Go back, 75 in Genesis 11 and 12. 99 and 17, when that's still not happening, and 100 when the, the baby comes around. And chapter 18 just says they're old and advanced in years. What Paul says in Romans 4, nearly dead, practically dead, as good as dead. <laughs> yeah, that may not be the greatest thing to hear, but that's what he's saying. As good as dead. And God says, yeah, I still got a plan. I still got a plan for you. I still know what I'm doing. Okay? His fully convinced is important. Now we're going to skip away from Romans for a second. Abraham being fully convinced. We see this in Hebrews 11. Such a great passage talking about his faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, this is key, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. After all we've just talked about, after every, all the waiting, the promises that didn't seem like they could happen, he finally gives him a son at 100 years old, and then another 10 to 15 years later, we have a situation like this where he says, now I want you to kill him. <laughs> he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This seems ridiculous, but this is the fully convinced that we're talking about. He considered, verse 19, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He was so convinced, so embedded in his relationship with the Lord that it was as impossible as it seems, he trusted him to that point that he's going to fulfill it. Now, we don't know how God's going to work everything out. Uh, earlier the, today in, in hour one, Zach made reference of eschatology. We've all got our opinions on how we interpret these things. I know the Lord's going to come back. I know that for sure. I know he's going to take me, and he's going to take you if you're in Christ too. I know he's going to establish his kingdom. I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I can take some guesses from the scriptures. But I know it's going to happen. As ridiculous as it sounds, there will be a day where we hear the trumpet call and the, the shout of the archangel. You can book it. I don't know when. And it seems ridiculous, but I believe it. Because our God is able. And what kind of faith is that? Well, the beginning of Hebrews 11, verse 1, very famous verse. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We don't see it. We don't physically have it. I've never encountered Christ physically. I've never shook his hand or washed his feet. I've never been with him physically. I will someday. But faith in him is the reality so convinced that it's as if he's standing right here next to me physically. I'm just as convinced. That's what we're talking about. And that's what we're dealing with here. So look at what Peter says about this very thing. Notice it's connecting testing and difficulty. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise and glory. Did we already, already hear that in Romans 4? We did. When things don't go your way, but you still trust in the Lord. When things seem ridiculous, you still trust in the Lord. It just draws you to him, gives, and, and it gives you more opportunity to give him glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. You haven't seen him, but you love him. Though you don't now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's coming. It's coming soon. And we think of that Romans 4.20, it's exactly the same. God already knows. He knows what the future holds. 
We don't. We trust the one who does. Keep in mind, the testing of your faith is not for God to see if you're a believer. He already knows. Because he's the one that saved you, and he's the one that holds you, and he's the one that guarantees it. He already knows. What's the testing of your faith to, to, for? What's the purpose of it? A variety of things, but one of them, so that you know that you know that you know. That you know that when you go through these hard things and you're still trusting the Lord, you still believe in him, you love him even more, it's so you know and that you're confident and you have boldness to go tell other people who don't know. See, that's what it's about. That's what it's always about. Romans 8, as we go here, and I'm going to sort of hit these real quick for the sake of time, talking about the Lord's return and longing for his kingdom Not only the creation is longing for this, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of the Son, the redemption of our bodies. In this we hope, and we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? See, true, true faith is something that we trust the Lord in. 2 Corinthians 4, similar. This light, momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're going to go through some hard things. There's going to be some difficulties, much like Abraham had. But this is preparing us. This is light comparatively. Light compared to what we'll see. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Do you see parallels in all these? For the things that are seen are transient. They come and go. They're a vapor. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And then Paul, or excuse me, John, coming back to John as we heard from him this morning, but in his gospel... This, this encounter between Christ and Martha at the resurrection of her brother, Lazarus. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he said, do you believe this? And her, her brother was dead in a tomb for four days. And Jesus is about to resurrect him. How ridiculous, Right? Just put yourself in that situation. How ridiculous. But he challenges her. Do you believe this? Much like he challenges Peter. Who do you say that I am? Much much like he challenges Thomas in the upper room. Who do you think that I am? What do you say? What's your response? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Keep in mind, that's why John wrote that gospel, right? John 20, verse 31 But I write these things so that you'll hear them, that you'll understand them, that you'll understand who Christ is, and that you believe in the Christ, and then so believing, you will have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of the entire gospel. Verse 7, the progeny of Abraham. And these will go much quicker from there. Of course, I had to spend a lot of time in verse 6. But Galatians 3, 7 says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those of faith, not just descendants physically, The true descendants of Abraham are those of faith. That's what we see in verse 7. Those of faith, faith in Christ, faith in who he is, faith in what he's about. So as we look at this, we enter into a relationship with God through faith alone, just as Abraham did. This pattern that we're seeing hasn't changed at all because the gospel never changes. As we go back to Romans again, this is Romans 3, and we'll hit Romans 4 again, actually, because of the, the progression. But look at Romans 3. And I really should have put this second, but because it was first in the Bible, I put it first. Here's what it says. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. 
Do we then overthrow the law by his faith? By no means. And the reason why I should have put this a little later, but it was so critical here, is because we don't get rid of the law. We don't just stop obeying the Lord. Of course, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The moral law we continue to, to serve the Lord with. As a matter of fact, we're more equipped to do that when we're justified by faith. Do you, do you know how ill-equipped you are before you're a believer to actually follow any of the moral law with the right attitude, with the right heart from the right perspective? You have zero capacity. Any good that I do as a believer today is the Lord doing it through me, and that's the same for you. Of course, we don't oppose the law. Of course, we hold it up, that moral law. So we enter into this right relationship. Look at Romans 4.23 up on the screen. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for yours also. Talking to Gentiles too. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. For us too. So this is an incredible consideration. Jews and Gentiles alike, not being of the descendants of Abraham is irrelevant. We can be saved through faith in Jesus. So this is a prototype. Now, we got a dangerous thing that can happen here. And we don't do it here, but there are churches who do this. There is a possibility when we look at this, Abraham is the prototype of salvation and the spiritual father. Here's what people can do. They can do something called replacement theology. And that is the idea that all God's promises that we read here, that we'll read throughout the Old Testament, from, from Abraham to Moses... To, to David, all then transfer to the church and there's nothing, the nation of Israel has nothing to do with it anymore. That's called replacement theology and that's not good. That's not what this is talking about. And here's some proof for you if you'd like a little bit of proof. I can't spend too much time on this, but this is the nail in the coffin, in my opinion. For those who believe we have replaced the nation of Israel, I don't think you can do it. Look at what Jeremiah says. God says through Jeremiah, as a matter of fact, starting at verse 35 of Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord, that's important when you hear that, by the way, who gives sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it, its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, just in case you weren't sure who we were talking about. If this fixed order, what he just described, creation and everything in it, if this fixed order departs from me, from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from becoming a nation before me forever. You realize the church has never been called a nation? Because we're not. We're grafted into the promises. We're spiritual descendants of Abraham, but we're not the nation of Israel. And God says it's never going to cease. The promises are still going to be fulfilled. Do they need to put, put their faith in Christ? Absolutely. But he has a special program in the future for Israel, that he will continue to use them. They need grace by faith through Jesus alone, but he has a special work for them in the future, just like he does for the church, just like he does for us. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be, can be explored, then will I cast off the, all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. He is not going to abandon his nation Israel. You are blessed because you are saved. But you are not the nation of Israel, and you should be okay with that. That's okay. You have so much to look forward to, so much that is coming your way, that we don't have to be the nation of Israel. And as we consider this faith in action concept, here's what we see. 
Jesus speaking to this man. He replied to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Having some mic troubles here. Those are who are really my family members. Those are the ones who really are my followers. Now I want you to consider the context of this. His mother, brothers, were standing outside trying to get a hold of him, trying to get him to come out and talk to them. And he said, well, okay, I love you guys, but here's my real family, those who do what I say. Obedience is really important. And then moving along, the purpose of Abraham. 3, 8, back to chapter 3, verse 8. Here's what it says. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now we've already seen this. We've seen this before in Genesis 12, 3. The whole earth, the families of the earth shall be blessed. The key to this is that the promise of the Messiah is coming through him. It's coming through Abraham and it was promised to Abraham from the very beginning. From the very beginning we see that the Messiah is promised. That's why Paul is quoting this in Galatians 3, 8. That the, the idea of the, of the Messiah, the hope, the promise, what we have to have was thought of, considered, and reckoned in the mind of Abraham all those years ago. He understood it. He didn't understand it all as like we do today, looking back, but he understood it to a degree. Here's what it says. I will surely bless you. This is Genesis 22. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Certainly talking about not just the Jews, but we who are grafted in. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's the promise and there's where we see it. As we go forward in this, Hebrews 11 again, second time we've looked at this. Notice this, verse 12. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Sounds just like Genesis 22, right? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They knew it was coming. See, when we look at this, I, I think about this all the time with my students. The, the number one question I get from, from kids, teenagers, as we start teaching and I start teaching them the Old Testament, they go, wait a minute, Mr. Johnson. Jesus hadn't come yet in the Old Testament. How did those people get saved? And I ask, let them ask, answer the question themselves. And the common things I get is, well, they sacrificed animals. They, they saved them. They followed the law. That saved them. Uh, God just gave them a pass so that they could you know, be good until Jesus got there. They, they come up with all things. But the truth is, they believed in the, the, the gospel beforehand. They knew it was coming. They believed in what the prophet said, what God said, what God predicted all the way back in Genesis 3. They believed it. They didn't understand every bit of it, just like you don't. We understand a little bit more. We got a little bit more information. But we believe in it, even though we can't physically see it, and they trust the Lord on it. They believed the gospel. They believed Jesus was coming, the Messiah was coming. They couldn't see it exactly, but it was a far off, but it was coming. As we've talked about so many times here, the prophets of the Old Testament, they saw glimpses of it. They kind of have that mountain view as they see these mountain peaks, and they can't see how close they are to one another. They can't see all the detail. They're telling you what they saw, but they trusted in it. 
Daniel, when he was given the prophecies, God said, put that away. You're not going to understand it just yet. Not until the end. Okay? It's not for right now. But they could see a little bit. It was from afar, but they could see it. It was preached beforehand. And notice this. It says, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They knew they weren't from here. Nor are you from here. Much like we hear in John 17. You're not of this world. But you trust in the one who's made these promises, the one who is coming. That's what we see here. That they saw it coming. Look at John 8, real quick. Jesus, again, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But have you not known him? I know him. If I were to say that I didn't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. What do you mean he saw it? He believed the promises. He believed what God said. He understood that the Messiah was coming from his line, and he was glad. Did he understand every detail? No. But he saw it because that's what faith is. It's reality, even if you physically aren't there with it. He saw it. He believed it. It was true. Even though it was ridiculous, he saw it and he was glad. And of course, they challenged him. You're not even 50 years old. How could you be? And notice what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I encountered him. I talked to him. I was the one. I'm the one who told him this. He knew me, Jesus talking about the triunity of the, of the, of, of the Trinity. I'm the one. He knows me. I knew him. And they, they wanted to kill him for this. As we think about this, here's what Paul says in Acts 26. What the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That, that is what people believed in. What the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. They didn't know all the detail, but they knew it was coming. They believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. They believed in Christ. They believed in Jesus, the story, the gospel, the death, the resurrection. They didn't know all the detail, but they trusted the Lord in it. They were saved just like you're saved. They believed in what God said. That's what it was. And then finally, what's the promise of Abraham? And we'll end with this, verse 9. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Well, that's good news. We're blessed with Abraham. Now, I could go back and retell the story of Abraham. His life was not easy. So being blessed like Abraham may mean your life isn't easy either. Abraham's prayers weren't always answered the way he wanted them to be. Maybe your prayers won't always be answered the way you want them to be. That might be how you're blessed. You might be blessed by having to move around a lot. You might be blessed by having to go through hard struggles, having to have family members who aren't quite doing the right thing like Lot was. Maybe you're going to be blessed like that. Challenges that you don't foresee. Things that you don't quite understand. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But here's what I think the ultimate blessing is as we look at this. And this is a little small. It says this. Verse 9 says, It's those of faith who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Some of your Bible said the believer, which I think is so cool. The believer, it says in the NASB. What happened to Abraham? It says, so then. Abraham's blessed initially through faith alone. Nothing else, no law, no circumcision. So then, because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith in Christ for the redemption of sins from the human point of view is ridiculous. It's irrational, but it's true and it gives you the hope. So when we believe in the gospel of grace by faith through God's and receiving God's righteousness, that great exchange happens. That was mentioned this morning. 
And I'd like to end with this, these couple verses, this imputation. What is it that you're blessed with? Here's the problem. When you're born, you're blessed with this, a whole lot of sin. Yeah. See, that's what you've got. You've got hopelessness. You've got death. You've got eternity in hell. That's what you've got. That's what you are. That's what you once were if you're in Christ. But notice this. This imputation, this great exchange, says this, being found in him, Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. I, I didn't bring that to the table. That comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. You bring nothing to the table. You've been blessed with a lot of sin, a lot of trouble, a lot of death, and a lot of future of God's wrath. But thanks be to God, that's not true. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The exchange there. That, that exchange is a, as we heard in hour number one from Zach, that's a double deal. You give him your sin, he gives you his righteousness. You want to know how you're blessed like Abraham? Right there. Because without it, you're lost. There is no other way. And I, I want to end with this. Ephesians 2. So I mentioned, remember Abraham was verses 1 through 3. He was following after false gods, the way of the world, going after his own passions. We don't know the detail, but that's what he was doing. That's what he was doing. But Verse 4 is so incredible. This happened to Abraham. And if you're in Christ, and if you're not, today's your day to believe all that you've just heard. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when Abraham was going after false gods, even when he was in Ur and didn't know nothing about him, even then, even you, going after whatever you were going after, he made you alive together with Christ. How are you blessed like Abraham if you're in Christ? Right here. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's how you've been blessed. Did Abraham deserve what he got? No, he didn't. Do you deserve what you get in Christ? No, you don't. But I want you to consider, if that's true, and it is, by the way, if you're wondering, how then should you live? Man, think about this. How then did Abraham live? In obedience. Abraham looked at this, and he considered it, and he became an example that we're still talking about today, that we still talk about today. Multiple religions looked to Abraham because of his faithfulness. Now, we know the truth of it. We understand exactly what it's about, but what about you? Do people know you for your faithfulness? Do they know you because of your obedience to the Word of God, because of what has been done to you? Do people recognize that there's something different about you like they did with Abraham? None of this saved Abraham. This was a reaction to him being saved. He was believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the rest of his life proved that to be true. I'm going to challenge you. Let the rest of your life prove that to be true. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that we had. Thank you for the example of Abraham. His pattern, the program, the progeny, all of it, and then the promise. We consider all of these things and for our life today. We know that we're called to do the same. I pray that we live lives worthy of the calling, but we live lives in, 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 that react and are reacting properly to this incredible grace 
that you've bestowed on us. I pray that we can be living examples of what it is to be a man or a woman of faith. Thank you for this incredible salvation that you've given us. I pray that that this week you empower us to work through it and, and show it to other people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.